Welcome, uh, Richard, and thanks for being here. How are you? I'm well, thank you. And thank you for inviting me. A pleasure to be here. We're going to get all into your journey. Like we always love to get the dirt on our guests. What took you to your turning point and uh, how did you get here from there? But does the headless way or like we're jumping way ahead or non-dualism really speak to death and loss and how to uh, sort of deal with the, those sort of things? You know how religions have comforting ways to uh, appease people in suffering. How about your practice? Yes, it does have... Uh... It does have an effect on how one responds to death, for sure. Uh, I'm sure everyone has a slightly different take on it, um, but I'm happy to share mine. Uh, I think the thing to do is to, first of all, explore the experience, and uh, then we can look at how it might uh, apply to different situations, rather than jump ahead into philosophy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, you're all about exercises and experience, but can you take us back to what your your whole journey with the Headless Way, please? Yes, I did come across the Headless Way when I was young. I was a teenager, and uh, I am in England. I was brought up in Yorkshire, and I got interested in spiritual things. And uh, I tried Christianity out first, and then I... By the time I was 16, that wasn't really what, that wasn't what I was looking for. I was looking to find out who I really was. I was influenced by reading books like, uh, by people like Alan Watts and then Christmas Humphreys of the uh, Buddhist Society. And I heard about the London Buddhist Society. When I was 17, I went to their summer school all the way down near London when I was a teenager. My mother thought that I was going to join a cult. <laughs> It's so 1970, and uh, I met Douglas Harding. I hadn't heard of him, and he took me and other people through a number of experiments, and I saw my true nature, and, you know, that's what I was looking for. So I not only did I see my true nature, but I thought this is a fantastically modern, direct way of seeing into your true nature, uh, I would like to share this. And that's what I've done, really. I've The heart of my life has been continuing to be aware of my true nature and uh, sharing it with anyone who is open to it, interested in it. So that's what I'm doing here. <laughs> and so how often do you do these uh, gatherings and uh, how well-schooled do people have to be? Is it beginners to... Advanced. Oh, you don't have to have any experience at all. No, I, you'll see as soon as I get going, uh, it is about attending to what it's like to be you. So you've got everything with you that you need and uh, you've got all the experience you need. And uh, I offer this way. And then if it is of interest to you, great. If it's not, you know, uh, nice to meet you. <laughs> So uh, shall I jump in then, Joe? And yeah, just... please do. That would okay. be great. We right. are yours for the hour. Okay. So uh, this is really exploring the question, who am I? What am I? And uh, that's an important question, I would say, because who you think you are affects how you relate to others and to the world. Uh, this is checking out whether you are what you look like. So this is not a psychological investigation of what kind of person you are. This is uh, something much more basic and uh, deceptively simple. And uh, there is a kind of jargon to the headless way. So if you can relax a bit and, and understand that, you know, that just another way of talking about things you, you may well have thought about already, then uh, then we won't get hung up on words. But so what I am going to propose is that you, there's a difference between what you look like, which you can either see on the screen or when you look in a mirror, you can see your appearance there or in a photograph or what other people see when they look at you 
is your appearance, including your face and your head and your whole body and your background. Now, is that what you are for yourself? And I am going to propose that you for yourself privately in your own experience are, are very, very different from what you look like. And uh, this is really giving you a kind of hypothesis that you're going to test with some experiments. And the hypothesis is that you are not what you look like. What you look like in the kind of crudest, simplest terms is you're a thing. You're some kind of thing. You're a person. But my proposal is what you really are from your point of view is no thing full of everything. This is a non-dual bit, but I, I don't personally use that term myself, non-dual really. But so, in other words, I'm going to suggest that for yourself privately, you're like space that is full of the world. And that space has no boundaries, and it's not in time, which relates to death a bit. And uh, you are empty for the world. And this is just a most, I suggest, a most wonderful thing to discover. It's a kind of inner freedom and an inner peace and an inner stillness that cannot be disturbed by whatever happens to you. Now, this is the testing, uh, but it's certainly my experience. And this is not that because I've been doing it for so long. It's just the way one is built. So... I think you mentioned, Joe, the pointing experiment uh, and how uh, someone was saying that that is one of the kind of powerful, simple methods for directing attention to your true nature, by which I mean this open space where you are. So I'm going to ask the, the viewer and the listener to do a, an experiment that involves something rather childlike. So you'll have to pretend no one's watching. <laughs> so you don't feel embarrassed. Try. I'm going to do it. I'll make a fool of myself. And then you can just join in and say, well, I'm, you know. So what you're going to do, and this is, this is deceptively simple, is you're going to take your index finger and point at something in front of you. And this is, meditation is about attention, and this directs your attention. So just point at, you know, the keyboard or a glass or the computer and look along your finger and notice what you're pointing at has a shape and a color. It's a thing. Now, uh, you might like that thing or you might not. You might know how it was made. You might not. It doesn't matter. This is a sort of very basic observation that you can see something there. Now I want you to point at your other hand and notice it's the same. So that's part of your body and you can see the shape and the movement and it's got a, a background. It's a thing. Now here is the the coup de grace, you're going to point back at where others see your face. So you're going to hold your finger out a foot in front of you. And it's vital you do this. Otherwise, you're sort of just reading the menu and not eating the meal. Point back at where others see your face, at your appearance, you see. Now, what do you see on your side of your finger? I don't see my face. I don't see anything here. See, not think or imagine or remember or take other people's word for it, everyone else looking at you would see you pointing at your head. But what is your private experience? And I find I'm pointing at, well, there's nothing here, just my finger, open space. And that is directing your attention to the place that no one else can see but you. So you can stop pointing now for a moment. Now, this is a private thing. I cannot prove to you that I'm looking out of space here. You see, I don't see my face here where I'm pointing. My fingers point at nothing. And you can try this. Here's another way, because this is about guiding your attention. It's not about convincing you of a philosophy. It's about guiding your attention. And then you can describe it as you like. So the, the, the essential thing is to uh, attend. And these experiments guide your attention to from what you're looking at to the place you're looking out of. And it's the place you're looking out of that we're focusing on, because what are you? So hold your hand out in front of you 
And you can do this whether you're watching or listening, and you can see your hand. And what you're going to do is you're going to move your hand back past your head, but watch what happens. So you move your hand back. You're just going to look ahead, and your hand gets bigger and then disappears. And then you bring it forward and watch it come out of nowhere. It's a huge hand, just appears out of nowhere, and then gets smaller. Now, you can try it on the other side to see if it works. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> I mean, it's so simple, but hold your other hand out. See, I'm going to hold my hand out and look at it and just look ahead, you see, and then bring your hand past your head and notice it gets bigger and disappears. There's the great void, the emptiness, and that comes out the great void, awareness. So we start visually because it's the easiest way to communicate, but Here's another one, you see. What, how many eyes are you looking out of? Well, I mean, it sounds a mad question. Until you put, you say, well, okay, let me just, you know, humor him. <laughs> you know, let me just play along in case he's got something going here. Now, you hold your hands up, and I'll describe it. So if you're just listening, you make a pair of glasses with your hands. You put them together so they're like binoculars, and you see two holes. So if everyone tries this, I would be uh, tickled. <laughs> and then you're going to put these on like glasses and watch what happens to the dividing line. And as you put them on, the dividing line disappears. The two become one. You see, this we call this the single eye. So now, I believe you know what I'm talking about. You understand that from the outside, because you're over there, you see my face, but you understand from my point of view, my hand disappears into the great void, nothing here, you see? I'm pointing at emptiness, clarity, space here that's full of the world, and I'm looking out of a single eye, because I believe we're all in the same condition, because you've never seen your head right where you are. And if you look down at your body, you'll see it's headless and your chest fades out. And you can see a bit of your nose, but it disappears into nothing here. And there are sensations, but they don't add up to a head. They are happening in the great space awareness. So one of the fantastic applications of this is how it works out in terms of relationships. Because when you look at me on the screen, or if you're just listening, you can imagine this. Well, you know, when you're with somebody else and you look at them like a child would look, you see their face, but you don't see yours at the same time. You can remember it, imagine it, that self-consciousness, but in terms of direct experience, it's what I call face to no face. So when I'm with you, say, if we were in the same room, I would have your face here now and you would have mine. We, we call it trading faces. And this is a fantastic way of uh, kind of, well, it's just true. <laughs> I'm very practical. So this, what I'm talking about, is something that you can be aware of, not just if you're meditating in, on a, you know, sitting down with your eyes closed, but when you're in the shop talking to the person at the till and you see, ah, I'm space for you, face to no face. Or you're walking down the street and you see the street moves through you and you're still. So you say, well, okay, that's, let, let me just put this in context, actually, because this really makes sense. Here's the philosophy bit you've got you know as they say uh, you know when they're going to give you the details of what the shampoo is made of you know concentrate <laughs> so are you all concentrating here's the here's the intellectual bit here is the small print all right so what you are depends on the range of the observer so in other words if you were looking at me and you say well i can see your head i would say that's because you're three feet away because if you came up to me with the right instruments, well, you'd lose my head and you get a patch of skin, and then you'd lose the patch of skin and you'd get a cell, and you go up to the cell, you'd get a molecule, you go up to the molecule, you get an atom, and then the nearest, nearest you can get practically disappeared. So in other words, each of us is like an onion in that we've got layers, and what you appear to be depends a lot on how far away your observer is, because if they went further away, they would no longer see just your head, you'd, they'd see your head and shoulders, then your whole body, 
then your whole body would get smaller in the field of view and they would see perhaps eventually, if they could go up in an airplane, they'd see a town. And then eventually, if you had a spacecraft, they'd see a country. They're still looking at you. And then the, the star and the galaxy. And you identify with these layers. I identify with being Richard, or I identify with a painful shoulder, or I identify with my family, or my town, or my country. Now, the question is, if that, you see, that is verifiable in a sense, you are like an onion. All right, just a bit more, concentrate. <laughs> You're like an onion. If we're asking the question, who or what am I? According to science, you have layers. And you need all these layers to sit here and breathe. You need your body, your lungs, your cells. You need your atmosphere. You need your planet. You need your star. You need the whole thing. This one living system. All right. But the question is, what are you at the center of all these layers? This is a different way, a modern way of asking the question, who am I? Now, all the great mystics say at center, you are something fantastic. There's no boundaries. There's not in time. That is immensely rich. Okay, that sounds good. What we're doing with these experiments is we're testing that claim. Because when you point back, if you do that again, just point back at the place you're looking at, out of, you're not pointing at one of your layers, you're pointing at the center of all the layers. And the great mystics say at the center, you have no boundaries, it's just open awareness. So what do you see? Are they right or are they wrong? Because you are where you are now. And when you point there, you can see what you are and no one else can. And I find no face here, no thing here. I find open space full of my finger, the Zoom meeting, the world. <laughs> Good news, you see. And then when you see, realize that's true for you, you say, oh, that must be true for everyone. Everyone at center is this freedom, you see, this stillness, this openness full of their view out. Now, before we do a, a little closed eye thing, how am I doing, Joe? Am I uh, competing You have my well attention. With, with... I'm not paying attention <laughs> to the rest. I'm worried about, you know, what score I'm going to get at the end here. <laughs> right. So here's that's a, that's a scientific context. It's one that really is, is, I think, easy to understand. But the other context is your personal development. So let me put it like this, and then we'll do another experiment. The four stages in your life, the baby, the child, the adult, and then the seer. All right. So the baby's headless, pre-verbal. You know, you were just space for the world. You had no idea yet of what you looked like. You were not yet face to face with your mom. You were just open, had her face. Just headless at large space for the world. From day one, others start reflecting back to you what you look like. You know, nice little baby. Your name's Richard or whatever, you know. And you, to begin with, you don't know what they're talking about, but they put you in front of the mirror and they point at the face there and say, that face is on your shoulders. You say, really? <laughs> I can't see it. But it's 24-7 and everybody reflects back what you look like. So you learn who you are in society through others. In other words, you kind of go out Position yourself over in their head, turn around, look at yourself through their eyes and see yourself with a head. So that as a child, you are learning about who you are in society. You're becoming aware of your appearance, your name, your age, where you live. And you're learning to put on the face you see in the mirror. We call it the face game. So in other words, to put it very simply, when you look in the mirror, you learn to reach in, in imagination, grab hold of the face there, pull it out, flip it the other way around because it's facing the wrong way, make it bigger, stretch it because it's too small, and put it on like putting a mask on. And then you learn to go around as if you're behind a face that you can't see. And all your touch sensations, you learn to marry to the image you see in the mirror. So now I know I'm touching my forehead, you see, and I look on the Zoom meeting or in the mirror, see my hand touching my forehead. My hand here disappears into nothing, but there are sensations. So I marry the two. So this is becoming self-conscious. This is learning which box you're in and you're not in the others. So as a child, you are in and out of this box that you're learning about. So as a baby, you have no idea who, what you are. You don't care. 
But society, as you're growing up, is feeding back to you who you are, telling you who you are, and you have no option but to take it on if you want to join in. So as a child, you're in a delightful situation where you're still open, but you're learning who you are in the world, in society. Third stage of the adult is you have bought into fully the view that you are what you look like, what everyone tells you you are. And now your experience of being headless, you just say, oh, well, that's meaningless. That's just, I, I've got a head, I just can't see it. So you deny your essential openness. And now when you look in the mirror, uh, you see the baby looks in the mirror, that's not you. The child is kind of learning, you're learning to put that on, but who is that, you know? And the adult, you look in the mirror, that's me. You have no doubt about it. So the third stage is you fully bought into you are what you look like. You are the one on the screen. You are, you know, someone says, Richard, automatically I turn and that's me. And I am overlooking my central openness. It's still there, but I'm just not aware of it because I have fully bought into what everyone tells me. You see, and no one's telling me that actually for yourself, Richard, you're open space. Well, that's third stage, the adult. But there is a fourth stage if you want to go on to it. And the fourth stage is reawakening to your own point of view, which is headless, whilst you're still aware that for others you have a head. All right. So you got both. So I'm aware I'm Richard. I'm aware, you know, that of my appearance, of my name, my age, where I live. But privately, I'm aware that I have no head, that I am looking out of a single eye, that I am space for the world. Now, this is a nonverbal experience. So I believe you have the same basic experience. You can't see your head. Instead, you see the world. But you may well, probably, I hope, Describe it differently in your own words. And the more different, you know, descriptions we have, the better. <laughs> and this does, you know, the experience itself is so simple and nonverbal that it is native to everyone. Now, this is very uh, accessible visually. Look for your head, you see how many eyes you're looking out of. But it is as accessible with your eyes closed. And so if we all close our eyes now, and uh, the question is, what am I? Not what others say I am, not what the mirror tells me I am, or what, you know, a book tells me, but in my own experience now, if I can, as much as possible, put aside my imagination of what I am and my, you know, what others say. Now, in your own experience, how big are you? Well, I mean, I, I experience a kind of darkness. I can't say how big the darkness is. I mean, how do you measure it? And uh, the body sensations I feel, if I were a baby, uh, I would have no idea that that was my body and it was a certain size and shape. Well, that's the kind of approach, you know, I, I'm asking you to put aside what you know. And with those sensations, can you really say how wide you are? Seen or how tall you are, or how old you are. Not memory, you see. Not memory. And um, I find I'm a kind of open space full of darkness now. And these are words, and they are inadequate. There you go. And into this space are coming sounds, sound of my voice, other sounds coming and going in this open awareness and uh, sensations coming and going, and thoughts and feelings. Thoughts and feelings get quite a bad press, don't they? They give us a lot of problems. And uh, we get feel burdened by them and caught up in them. But you know, there's a region at center where thoughts and feelings don't affect you. So for example, uh, I want you to think of a number. Now, where did that number come from? See, doesn't it just pop up out of nowhere? Now, think of uh, the image of a mountain. Just imagine a mountain. Well, where did that come from? In Zen, I think they say, mind comes out of no mind. My voice is coming out of the silence. The darkness is in the space. The thoughts and feelings come and go in this no mind. Now, there's one more thing I'm going to ask you to do with eyes closed. And this is a very quick tour. You know, this is I want you just to become aware of your left hand. 
be aware you've got an image of your hand, but the sensation, if you put aside the image, I mean, what, what shape is that sensation? If you're a baby, I mean, it's just sort of a cloud of sensation, isn't it, or something? All right. And that sensation, isn't it occurring? Where is it happening? Isn't it occurring in this open, what I'm calling this open space awareness? Now, make your hand into a fist so it's tense. So you've got tense tension there. Does the space get tense? See, well, I find it doesn't. So I've, I've now discovered that even though I might be feeling tense, the space isn't affected. So you can relax your hand now. And then open your eyes. And now in the space, you've got colors and shapes and all of that. So Joe, that is a quick tour. Uh, of uh, Headless Way, an introduction. The essential question is, what am I in my own experience? We know what we are for others, like the back of a hand, you know. You can talk about who you are, what your job is, where you live, your name, your character, all of that. That is based on what you look like. Now I'm asking you to do something quite radical because I'm asking you to kind of be alone for a moment, not take on the social view uh, and just look for yourself at the place you're looking out of, which is why we pointed. And when I point back at the place I'm looking out of, wow, it's so different from what you see. <laughs> well, I could go on, but I'm wondering if you've got questions or what the schedule is here, Joe. Well, I, I do have questions now yeah. that you mention it. That was a... a a kind softball to throw me. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. You know, I, <laughs> will I live to regret it? <laughs> no, I, I don't think so. Here you will find uh, not uh, universal agreement, but universal respect. <laughs> oh, that's very sweet. I've seen these animated uh, interactive things that take you from an image of your sort of self as a animated figure and you can go in right to the microbes and between the atoms and the empty space there, or you can zoom out above yourself into the clouds, uh, a galaxy far, far away and see yourself as just a, a, a speck of light in the galaxy you represent. And that's quite a, a trip in terms of reminding me to have perspective. And when you talk about facelessness, I think about how identity, it's a double-edged sword, isn't it? I, I mean, uh, my identity is a, uh, is a limiting factor. It, it, it's sort of like I wake up instead of to boundless possibilities. I wake up to the limits of my identity. I have these things to do. I have these expectations upon me. I have these people uh, in my life. I, you know, th there's this constraint that all comes from this identity, this this adaptation that I've taken, this face that you know has been given to me, that adult level that you were talking about, right? That it, yeah. it's it's supposed to be so free, uh, adulthood, but um, you know, that liberty comes with responsibility and, and limits too, doesn't it? But a lot of those are in my imagination, aren't they? Uh, I suppose they are. Uh, what I am as a person is limited uh, and always will be. And I think that growing up is coming to terms with that, isn't it? All of that. But uh, there's something that we overlook is that the place we're looking out of has no limits. Uh, this space I'm pointing at is not limited. And this helps cope with this sense of limitation that is bound to be there and that is, uh, you know, part of maturity is saying, yeah, I, I am limited. This is, this is what is given to me at the moment. But uh, if that's all you are, that is all you are. But it, I say it's not. The place I'm looking out of, there's no limits. And uh, to put it very kind of abruptly, are you in the world or is the world in you? 
And for others, I'm in the world, and I understand that. And I accept uh, more or less, when convenient, you see, that that's what I am. But privately, privately, I'm not in the world. The world is in me. This is so radically different identity, it, it cannot be overstated. Now, this is, uh, you know, I'm, I'm talking about this. It's a nonverbal experience. But to become aware I have a friend uh, who used to be in prison. He's written a great book called The Light That I Am. His name is J.C. Ambushell. And uh, I went to visit him in prison several times. And he's out now. And he wrote this book about the experience of headlessness whilst in prison. And he says, well, from the outside, you know, if I put myself in his shoes, I'm in prison and I can't get out. All right. So I'm not free. But from the inside, I'm not in prison. Prison is in me. Now, in somewhere or other, we're all in prison, aren't we? In terms of our human identity, we're all in prison. Uh, but are you at center in prison or is prison in you? Are you in the world? And many of us, you know, all of us uh, keep getting presented with situations we don't like, don't we? I do you know, that restrictors that, oh, my God, you know, is it only me? No, it's not only you. It's everybody. You know, We're all being thrown into situations out of our control, COVID, whatever, you know, that is the way life is, except the great, fantastic news is that when you look at your own experience for yourself, you see you're not contained in it. You're not face to face with it. You're face to no face. You're built open. Your true nature is this one consciousness in every being, really, this openness. And to not just know that and think about it, believe it, but to live consciously from that, that's the headless way. The headless way is essentially a nonverbal ongoing meditation. And it can only be done now. You can't stretch it out. It can only be done now, right now, right now. And you are, you, you are, this is where it is non-hierarchical and you are perfectly prepared in this moment now to look for yourself at the place you're looking out of. You couldn't be more prepared now. You know, I don't accept, oh, well, I, I need to do this or I'm not ready. You're not ready if you don't want to be ready. But right now, what are you looking out of? You can see that. It's not rocket science, you see. Are you looking out the small thing that is pushed around by the world, that is at the mercy of events, that is in prison in one way or another, that's up against it, just not going your way? Is that who you are only? And that is who you are at a certain level, and it's important not to deny that. Headless way is not a kind of bypass thing where you say, oh, it doesn't matter. No, no, not at all. But is that all you are? Or are you looking out of this freedom? You see, and all you have to do is, is look. Where does your hand disappear into? When you close your eyes and you're lying in bed at night, how big are you? Do you no one can answer that question but you, you see. And if you've answered it yesterday, it's no good. You've got to look again now, you see, because it's not memory. This whole uh, just start where you're at idea, you're really playing havoc with my Protestant work ethic. <laughs> the idea that I have to practice, I have to put in the time, got to get in shape for this. <laughs> well, actually, I think it's a paradox and that there's nothing to do and everything to do. Uh, and it takes no effort and it takes every ounce of energy in your body. Whenever I hear an absolutist statement, I, I have an automatic reaction like the opposite is probably true. <laughs> no, because it's a thought, you see. It's a, it's a position, and no position is absolute. You see. So I have nothing against the Protestant work ethic, you see. I think actually, Joe, you could work a bit harder. <laughs> there are plenty of people here that would tell you that <laughs> now what i'm talking about is available to everyone you see uh, and it's your nat this isn't something that it's open to some and not to others you can't see your head instead you see the world well so what well when you're with someone like i'm with you all you guys now and uh, i'm aware of you but 
what am I? I am not Richard over here, separate from you. I am space for you. I am not up against you. You're in me. And presumably I'm in you. Now, that is just, I'm describing my experience now. You know, you probably describe it differently. But this is wonderful. This is healing, isn't it? This is healing. There's the only true healing in the deepest sense is, is seeing there is no dividing line between what you're looking at and what you're looking out of. Is that true, you see? Is that true? Yes, it's true. <laughs> yeah, I love what you say about uh, sort of the paradox, yes and non-binary. Uh, I, I like that a lot. Because the idea that you can start anywhere, I read a little bit about uh, Douglas Harden and his uh, enlightenment, his breakthrough. Like, like he started drawing pictures, like sort of self-portraits from the headless way, right? So you could see the hand in the paper and you could see his feet and the fireplace, but you, you couldn't see his face, right? He was doing a self-portrait of what he saw, not exactly, what his, yes. his image of himself was. And yes, that, you that's know, a great a exercise for anyone. Well, yes, it's a very good exercise. But I have a friend, we did we did a workshop. I did a workshop up in Brighton Bush, which is, uh, I don't know if you know that, it's up in Oregon. It, it, it uh, is a spa or, you know, hot springs. But we they've got, uh, in the middle of nowhere, it's wonderful. And we did uh, like a few days workshop there. I think it was after the workshop had finished and we'd gone. But the, the poster for the workshop was still on the door somewhere, you know. And the poster was that a picture like that of a headless body drawn. And I have a friend who lives in Maui called Christine. And Christine visited Brighton Bush after the workshop had finished and we'd gone. And uh, she was in the, the little hallway there and she saw the poster and looked at it. That's all she needed. And she said, she turned around, she walked out you know, into nature, and she's just seeing, she's wide open. That's all she needed was that picture. <laughs> now, that picture, you know, what could be more direct than drawing yourself? Draw you, if, if you were asked to draw yourself now, not from memory, but what you actually see, you wouldn't draw your head. <laughs> you'd, you'd draw the tree. You'd draw headless body with the world on your shoulders. Take it seriously. Yeah. Uh, John asks, here's a question from uh, one of the audience members. Now, the headless way is rarely achieved by the bulk of the population. You spoke to this as being a fourth phase after adulthood. Uh, but do you see it as an evolutionary state where humanity is sort of growing towards? Yes. Uh, I mean, you wouldn't have any difficulty saying that it's quite natural for the baby to develop into the child, and then it's natural for the child to develop into the adult, and you'd be very worried if there was anything got in the way of that development, right? I mean, you've got to get out of the way and let it happen because it's just a natural thing. Now, my what is happening there? You've got the first-person view, the baby, who doesn't know about what you look like, You've got the child beginning to go out and look back, see yourself. You've got the adult out there looking back and denying what you are in your own point of view. Now, the next natural evolutionary step is being aware of both. And all you've got, you've got to do in terms, in terms of your own development and humanity is get out of the way and let it happen. You know, I mean, this is unstoppable unless we you know, put our foot in it. <laughs> it's everywhere from the sort of crisis management, just deal with an immediate problem to sort of enlightenment to be com a complete game changer for the rest of somebody's life. Uh, people who practice the headless way, it's not all or nothing, is it? It's it's oh, no, no, uh, no. You know, actually, I, I really, uh, you know, if I think about it, I'm talking to you, uh, all of you as equals, uh, uh, that because I am convinced that you can't see your own head, right? So, you know, there, there we are. Your thoughts and feelings about this and, and everything else are going to be different from mine. 
you know, you don't have to subscribe to some kind of, you know, it's all or nothing, you know, I'd like you to sign here. <laughs> you know, it's not like that at all. This is like natural. And I, you know, if we had more time, I'd say, so, you know, how does it look to you from there? And, uh, you know, my I hang out with friends and, uh, A, we don't always talk about headlessness, but if we do, it's, um, it's friends sharing their responses to this nonverbal experience. You know, what could be more enjoyable than that? Someone asked about, this has been so visual, what about someone who's blind? And have you worked with anybody who's blind? Because we have a sense of our identity, even if we don't see. Uh, but, you know, is blindness an advantage or a disadvantage? Is this beyond their comprehension if they have no sight uh, or... There's you know, a good article on our website under experiments called In Seeing Experiments for the Blind, uh, written by a guy who is blind. But I think, you know, if we just close our eyes, you know, that's a bit like going blind, I suppose, you know. Now, you, you've got, you've still got a sense of who you are in the world, you know. The, you know, as I was saying before, on present evidence, how big are you? You know, how big are you? Can you say where you, you know, that there's a boundary where you stop and then the world begins? I mean, pay attention to the sensation of sitting on your chair. Now, you've got an image of your body and the chair, you know, so there's a separation there as, an, as a memory, as an image. But if you go by the sensation, where's the dividing line? And is that sensation of a body and a chair, or is it just a sensation, a sort of cloud of sensation in awareness? And be aware of your whole body now, you know, all the sensation. Well, you don't see your body. You, you've got uh, some kind of image self-image of your body separate from the environment. But on present evidence, how big is that whole field of sensation? If it has a boundary, what's on the other side of the, you know, going by experience. You've got all these thoughts and feelings going on, you see, and you provisionally you say, well, they're in my head, so they're only about eight inches across. You know, it's all happening. All these thoughts and feelings I've got are in my head, so it's a very small space, you know, and then there's the rest of the world. All right, you've got that social, socially useful idea. But then be aware of the you know, general field of mind, your thoughts and feelings. Now, how big is that? See, how wide is your mind? I mean, there's no way of measuring it, is there? I mean, it's just going on in infinite awareness, if you like. The article that this friend wrote, Alan, is, mm -hmm. is he says that, you know, if you keep your eyes closed for a bit longer, that a blind, blind person still has a sense of being somebody. So what you've got to do is, as with the pointing experiment, you point back at the place you're looking out of, you've just got to reverse your attention. So you listen to a sound, and that's a kind of, outward attention and then you listen back and is there anyone listening or is it just sound in silence so it's that kind of thing so being blind is not you know i i think my friend would say it was an advantage <laughs> but anyway mm. we can open our eyes now and i i have a couple of friends in australia who are uh, uh blind or almost blind i mean they all their lives and uh i share this with them i, I mean no problem at all you know, actually, I mean, you hang out and you, you've got, you know, if I'm talking to them, they've got my voice and their voice in one consciousness. One silence, you see. It's this is so abstract, yet so concrete. <laughs> I, I remember I was just doing my research. I, I saw you were interviewed by Sam Harris. Now, you know, for some, he's a polarizing character. People love him. People don't like him. But... Uh, he's historically known for sort of deconstructing, for myth-busting people's belief systems. And that's something I thought, oh, no, what's he going to do to Richard Lang? But he is side by side with you, isn't he? What was it like uh, talking to Sam Harris? Oh, yeah. No, I mean, Sam is, is we're on the same page there. You know? Yeah, I mean, totally. How, how, yeah. How, how could you not be? And, uh, you know, and he is always really directing your attention back to, to what are you? Because that's the question, isn't it? What am I? And I just assume I know what I am. I'm, I'm a person, you see. 
So everything else is built on that. Your whole life, our whole lives are built on this premise that I'm a person separate from you. All right, we've got that. That's the outside view. That makes sense. But the headless way is saying, no, I am actually, I'm going to question that. And I'm not going to question it intellectually. I'm just going to look first and look for myself at what it's like here. Is there somebody here at my, in my head, at my center, behind my face? Or is it just open? Now, no one can decide that for you except you. No one can look to see if you're open or not. I'm open. I'm empty for the world. I love it. You know, I'm, I'm broadcasting it uh, because it's just wonderful. You know, not always wonderful, but it's true, you see. And I say, well, look for yourself. And uh, I, you know, I, I'm convinced it's the same for you, but that's up to you. Uh, this is a respect, you know, obviously, yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, if you say, yeah, well, I say, well, okay, we're friends. <laughs> we are. Uh, Richard, uh, someone asked uh, if you could speak more to what you mean by true nature. You've used that word a, a few times. And if you could just sort of describe it, is this an abstract idea or a concrete idea? Well, true nature, it comes from Buddhism, I think, uh, probably from other religions. And it is the phrase they used to talk about uh, what, what you really, really are as opposed to your appearance. And uh, I quite like the phrase, but, you know, you pick your poison, really, because all phrases are limited. True nature, uh, the clarity here at centre, your, your awareness, consciousness. Um, I, I, you know, in fact, true nature isn't very good, really, because it assumes that then your human nature is false. And I don't like that. I love my human nature. So, I, you know, peripheral and central would might be a bit, you know, less judgmental, really. You know, this idea that your true nature is true and the other one is false, I, I find very demeaning, really, and disrespectful of one's precious human nature. The center, you know, or here's the best description. Are you ready? This is mm -hmm. the one that's I'm the ready. best one. All right, here it is. did say I was ready for that. <laughs> I get your point. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> um, that, that's now, telling it like it is. <laughs> uh, here's the big question, Richard. Uh, Let's I'm say nervous now. Uh, yeah, the, you've got to be ready for this. The, you, you know, this is uh, two thirds of your score is based on your answer okay. to this question. Right. Okay. Can I phone <laughs> a friend? <laughs> you can phone a friend. Sure. But <laughs> Here's, here's the scenario. Things have gone so well in the headless way. You write a book. It's a bestseller. It's off the hook. You're on every show everywhere. People are, they're bidding on uh, buying on uh, stuff. You've been reading my get, wish list. To, to get to your uh, seminars. So with all of this wealth, you decide the drudgery of English weather is no longer for you. You buy a yacht, you move your family and all of your friends onto this yacht. You set, sail the seven seas until you get to Fiji where you hit a coral reef and it gets the underbelly of the boat and it's going down and you see a desert island, you get your family swimming to shore to safety. All you have time for as you're whole boat and your whole life is going down is you can go to your library you can grab one book put oh. it in one ziploc baggie take it to the desert island with you what's the book and who's it by oh i thought you were going to ask me a difficult question this is like desert island discs yes i'll show you the hierarchy of heaven and earth by douglas Hyde, but the big one i'll show you okay it is huge the hierarchy of heaven and earth. Uh, now, this is the greatest book of philosophy. It's so readable. It's huge. It's war and peace size. The hierarchy of heaven and earth, the original, uh, it's on Amazon. This is the most wonderful book. And uh, that be the, I uh, know, no, no different. I thought you were going to ask me something difficult. <laughs> <laughs> 
and and this was the book that when he was writing it, he wondered if he was going mad, would anybody read it? Yes. And uh, it got the interest of a famous writer. Was it Lewis? Yes, Lewis. Yeah, which just, you know, made his day, right? That's right. Well, I mean, after he'd written this huge book, he then condensed it because he thought this would never be published because it's so big. And he condensed it to sort of normal book size, sent the manuscript out to people. One of them was C.S. Lewis in Oxford. And uh, I've got the letter here. Uh, he he wrote back. He said, "I have never been so drunk with a book on all my in all my life. Uh, this is the work of the highest genius. That we must get it published." And that's he wrote the preface for it. Uh, it uh, it is just it is one of those books. I read uh, History of Philosophy by A. C. Grayling, and it covers from naught, you know, year zero to the present. And at the end, he says, "You know, but the, you know, maybe in the twentieth century there was." Someone wrote something that we don't know about that will change philosophy. Here it is. Here it is. Really. <laughs> I, you know, you can say I'm biased, but it is uh, just. Press it right up to the screen again, because people were trying to get closer there. So that's the hierarchy of heaven and earth. Uh, a new. Diagram uh, of man in the universe. And it's by D.E. D. Harding. Fantastic. Yeah. By oh. Douglas Harding. And what year was that uh, written? That was written in the 40s. The mm -hmm. condensed version was published in 1952. And this, the first time, because there's just there were just two copies of this. It was sort of hidden away. I met Douglas in 1970, and I, start, I read the small book. And then after, it must have been five, six years after I'd been reading the small book, you know, because I used to visit and stay with him. He, he, I suddenly discovered that that was a condensation of the big one. So then I went and stayed at his house for three weeks and read the whole thing. I was the first person to read the whole thing with, with chatting to him about it. It, it. That book is a game changer. It is a game changer, but no one knows about it. Well, they do now. They now, do now. This is, yes, this is going to go around. Here's uh, Opera, Tom uh, Opera has Winfrey. reached, you know, we, I'm not sure I can fit you in, but maybe. We have dozens of followers. <laughs> well, I, I'm glad I came. I'm on a roll here, aren't I? Okay, well, God, yeah. I'm, I'm going to spend all my money I haven't earned yet. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, I'm now officially going to uh, press pause. Thank everybody for participating. Uh, Richard, if you can First, hang I want to know people. how I did. What score? What's the score? Oh, yes. Okay, uh, everybody. Uh, we yeah, got, go, hold up. One to ten. Okay. Ten. Look we at got that. a ten. We got a ten. Uh, we got another ten over here. Oh, uh, ooh, seven there. <laughs> from that, that was from the seven-fingered guest, though. Uh, <laughs> oh, very diplomatic. <laughs> all right. Well, a, a delight to uh, hang out with you all. Thank you.